Well, it's good to be with you all. We are going to be taking a little break from Romans and uh, looking at a different section of a different Pauline epistle today. So if you have a paper Bible, you can open it to Philippians 3. We're going to be looking at the end of that chapter, verses 17 to 21. And the reality is that we are living, uh, as many of you know, we're living at a time where people are devoid of hope. You can feel the desperation palpably around you when you are out shopping, when you're out at events with lots of people. You watch the news, and it is, it is shocking to see the increase in violence in our society, the desperation that so many are feeling. We desperately need hope. And this passage points us to the greatest hope uh, that you can possibly conceive. It's really important when you are reading a story, think of something like Oliver Twist. When you are reading a story, it's important to know the ending. Sorry, where am I at? There we are, thank you. Um, it's really important to know the ending. Right? If you've read Oliver Twist, some of you middle schoolers here, perhaps, it's a hard ride. I mean, Dickens' humor carries you through a little bit, but this tragically orphaned boy goes from one bad situation to another. But it's really helpful that if you know at the end, he's going to be adopted into a loving family and all of his needs provided for. Paul is writing to people that, like him, if you're, if you're not familiar with the book of Philippians, it was written by uh, St. Paul. He is imprisoned in Rome, and he's awaiting trial. And he says earlier in this letter that he might be facing death. He also comments in writing to the Philippians, you guys are suffering under persecution just as I am. They were people that were suffering for their faith. They were persecuted in the culture they lived in. And so Paul uses this passage to say, you need to know the end of the story. You need to know where all this is headed so that you can persevere in the middle when it's challenging. Many of you are probably aware that in the same week, two weeks ago, we lost three significant leaders in the PCA. Most of you guys probably know the guy in the lower left-hand corner. That's Tim Keller. I know Sam worked under him many years ago up in New York City. The guy in the top right corner is Harry Reeder. He was a significant pastor at a church in Birmingham. You may not know the guy in the middle. He was a personal friend. His name is Steve Smallman. Uh, by the way, when you refer to someone who's died in Christ, always use present tense because he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Um, so anyway, Steve's, Steve's sermon is this week, and many people wrestle with, where are they right now? And it's really important that we get the end of the story, because Paul tells us earlier in Philippians that he longs to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, so they are with Christ and doing better than they've ever been. But that's not the end. And the reason why this is important is that if you don't have the right end of the story, you may not live in the right ways in the here and now. You may not be focused on the things that God wants you to focus on. Um, let me just take a moment 
and, and greet anyone here who's investigating the Christian faith, um, it's really important that you know the end of the Christian story. It is not a bunch of spirits floating around in the clouds with harps. It is a glorious, renewed cosmos in which everything is made right. And it really separates Christianity from lots of other faiths because it's not a purely spiritual existence where you go off and, and become part of the spiritual void somewhere. It affirms the goodness of God as creator who is going to renew his creation, remove all of its imperfections, of which death is the greatest enemy. So with those kind of introductory thoughts, I believe James is going to come up and read the scripture passage for us. James, if you would. Thank you. Philippians 3, 17 to 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. To their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, James. So I wanted James to read that whole context of that last paragraph, but we're really going to zero in and talk today just about uh, verses 20 and 21. I've included a little outline there if you're following along in your worship bulletin. So we're going to look at three main points today. Understanding citizenship, awaiting the deliverer, and knowing resurrection power. So the first thing is we need to understand right citizenship. So I'm going to give you a little bit, a very brief history of Philippi. Some of you people are getting nervous. I promise it will be quick. In, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar was assassinated by Cassius and Brutus. This led to a civil war in the Roman Empire. Two years later, two generals, Antony and Octavian, Octavian would later become Augustus Caesar, defeated the armies of Cassius and Brutus. And he, they defeated them around Philippi, outside the city. So now you've got these two victorious generals, and they've got thousands of soldiers that have nothing left to do. And the last thing these guys want is bringing all these soldiers back to Rome where they're going to be drinking and carousing, looking to have a good time. They don't want that happening in the capital city. So they said, ah, we'll make Philippi a Roman colony. We'll make all these guys citizens of Rome. We'll give them lands in Philippi and around farmland so they can just hang out here. So that was about 100 years before Paul shows up. When Paul arrives in Philippi, you've got the descendants from these original colonists. You also have an active military that's there. So you've got active duty soldiers. You've got veterans from the Roman legions who came and have settled there. It was a source of immense pride 
for the Philippians to be Roman citizens. So Paul describes them as citizens of heaven. Now, unlike uh, in the United States, at least since the 14th Amendment, if you are born within our territories, you become a citizen, right? It didn't work like that in the Roman Empire. You had to pay for your citizenship unless you were born as a child of a citizen. And the fee was so high, it was beyond the reach of most of the populace. So citizenship was a big deal. As I said, the Philippians were very proud. They were, they were unique among the cities of northern Greece there. They wanted to organize their life according to the same way life was lived in Rome. That meant, among other things, worshiping Caesar, the Caesars, as Lord and Savior. So they had temples to Augustus and Claudius. What Paul is doing in describing them as citizens of heaven is redirecting their understanding of citizenship and pointing them to their true identity. Now, this is important again, thinking of the end of the story. Philippians, being citizens of Rome, didn't mean they looked forward to going and living there. Like I said earlier, they didn't want all these people coming to live there. Rome was already overcrowded and underemployed. They didn't want thousands of more people showing up there. Um, I realize that colonial expansion, given you know, Western colonial expansion of the 18th and 19th centuries, has a really bad name. But you need to understand that colonialism in the Roman Empire worked differently. It wasn't the mother country going around the world to kind of exploit resources and enrich the, the sending nation. It was the mother city expanding its rule and influence around the world. Do you see? It was you living in northern Greece expand the rule of Rome there. Extend what it means to be a Roman citizen there. Teach those people in northern Greece our customs. Get them to become like Romans. So when Paul describes their citizenship in heaven, he's saying, like Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Extend the rule of your mother city where you are. In Philippi, extend the rule of your mother city. And just as the Philippians had no intention of going back to Rome and you know, making that their final resting pace, you need to realize, particularly if, if you're investigating the Christian faith, the end of the Christian story is actually heaven coming to earth. These two things that are separated being brought back together. Revelation 21 and 22 envisions the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And it gives this incredible description. It is a 1,400-mile cube city. It's, that's, that's the distance from Philly, roughly, to Dallas. This mammoth cube city coming down from heaven. Heaven and earth brought together, and it is in a recreated cosmos that we were just singing about a few moments ago, where Jesus is going to establish his reign with his people. Now, what, what difference does this make? You live differently 
if you're invested somewhere for the long term, if you have a rental property, you are not paying custom carpenters to come build cabinetry in the kitchen. I mean, it's just a stream of income for you, right? You're going to Home Depot, you're getting a bunch of cabinets and boxes, and you're throwing them up on the wall. But if this is your house, and you can afford to, you're going to pay to have that done. Because this is where you live. You're invested there. This is what Paul is urging the Philippians to do. Be invested there. But as a citizen of the mother city who is bringing the rule and influence to that place. Let me, let me pull this out a little further. This is why we do things like have a commitment in marriage that is lifelong. Because if you are committed for life, you've got to do the hard work. In fact, there's a place in the Gospels that I love where Jesus is teaching about marriage, and he basically says there's no way out. You know, you guys had hard hearts. That's why the law says you could divorce. And the disciples are so honest, they say, oh my goodness, if that's how it is, it's better not to get married. If we're stuck there and there's nothing you can do, what's the point of that? If you, if you are there for life, you will dig in and do the work that you need to do. Uh, early on, when I was a young married man, I remember a moment. I can't remember. I mean, mercifully, I can't remember what the fight was actually about. But we were having a fight, my wife and I, and I was on the way to work in Christian ministry, of course. And I'm sitting at a light, and I am just pouring out my heart to God. I'm so frustrated. And I just said in my car, I don't want to deal with this. And the Lord just put on my heart, if you don't deal with this, You'll always be dealing with this because it's marriage. You're stuck now. You need to do the hard work. That's why committing to the long term is important. Uh, that's why churches like ours have membership because we want people to be committed to the long haul together, to be in relationship with each other and so that we are able to say, Hey, I love you. I'm committed to being in relationship with you, and that's why I need to have this hard conversation with you. It makes a difference. This also means practically for the culture we live in. I love, I kind of looked ahead at the liturgy. I love that there is a, a call to love the city that you're in that is right in line with, with my heart this morning from this passage. It means that if we are working for cultural renewal where we are, it is not just greasing the wheels of a machine that is eventually going to go off a cliff. What does it matter? That, you know, we're going to just kind of go off to heaven one day. What does it matter what happens here? No, it means that we dig in where we are, overturning, working as best we can to be a part of overturning the effects of the curse, the ways that this world is broken, that we would be invested in overturning those things. What does that mean? We, we care deeply about the ethics of heaven, and we invite our neighbors to see the beauty and goodness of them. And at the same time, we realize that, that we need to be committed to serving the communities that we live in. It's not just saying, follow our ethics, but it's digging in, saying, how do we overturn the curse? And we see this so clearly 
in, in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus came to earth. He's declaring that the kingdom has come. And what is he doing? Everywhere he's going, he's, he's healing people. I mean, he's forgiving sins for sure, and that is the ultimate end point of his ministry. He came to seek and to save the lost, he said. But in the meantime, before he went to the cross, he's going around and he's touching all the hurting, all the heartbroken. He's restoring broken things. In fact, there's such a beautiful picture, um, and it's in a number of the Gospels, but I like the one in Luke 7, where John the Baptist is in prison. Uh, John the Baptist came and, and was, was pointing forward to Jesus, and, and um, Jesus now, the Gospels tell us that John got arrested and ended up in prison. And so John, who started off so full of faith and confidence, is in prison, and if you know the Gospels, it doesn't end well for him in this world. He ends up beheaded as a thank you gift to his head given on a platter to, to a dancing girl. And so he's having a dark night of the soul. And he sends a couple disciples to Jesus. Are you the one? And I love what, how Luke records it. Jesus doesn't answer. It just says, in that hour, he did a bunch of healing. He healed a bunch of people. And then he told the disciples, John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you just saw. Am I the one? Look at how the curse is being overturned. Look at how the world is being healed. And so he's inviting us to, to be a part of that and to have a role of that. Now, it is always going to be partial and incomplete until Jesus returns, which is why, second point, we're awaiting the deliverer. You see in our passage, we are awaiting the deliverer. And that's how I'm rendering the word you see um, in, in verse 20, we await a savior. The Greek word soter can be, can be rendered either savior or deliverer. Think about it this way. If we are beset by enemies, and that's what he's talking about in verses 17 to 19, there are people that are infiltrating the church. They are saying something counter to what they were taught by Paul. He's warning them against them. He describes them as enemies of the cross. Imagine Philippi was attacked by real-world enemies, another military force, barbarians from the north or something. They could hope that just like our NATO alliance, where an attack on one is an attack on all, that the emperor himself could sweep into town with the, the might of the Roman legions at his back and deliver them from their enemies. And so just as Paul has reinterpreted their understanding of citizenship, He's now reorienting their understanding of deliverance. What is the deliverance that you need? And so he is describing Jesus, you'll see there in, in verse 20, as Lord and Savior. Now, th this is important to realize. This is a picture of, uh, you've, got, you've got Augustus Caesar, and then this is the preen inscription from, from what is modern-day Turkey, this is written in Koine Greek, the same language of the New Testament, and it's saying, it's honoring Caesar's birthday, and it's referring to him as Lord and Savior. And it's declaring his gospel, his good news, that because Caesar is reigning, he has finally brought peace to the Roman Empire. Now, We've got to do a little work here. The reason why I wanted to put that up is I think it's very commonplace, even if you're not used to being a part of a, of a church, 
It's very commonplace to hear in culture Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's kind of ubiquitous in culture, American culture. What you need to realize, in first century Roman world, Caesar was Lord and Savior. This was profoundly countercultural. It was a deeply political statement that Paul is writing. In fact, this is the only place in any of his letters that Lord and Savior are used together. Specifically, talking about what their true citizenship is, right? So he is declaring Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, who, who is this deliverer? It tells us three, gives us three different titles in the text and his name. So first, it describes him as Savior. I've said deliverer. And the reason why I wanted to use deliverer is because a deliverer is someone who rescues you from danger. And, and that's what Jesus did. The Bible describes humanity as an oppressed people. People under oppression. In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel longing to be freed from Egypt. In Jesus' day, it was the Jewish people longing to be freed from their Roman overlords. But the Bible describes that, that the ultimate oppressor that is on all of humanity is sin and death. And that Jesus came as the one to deliver us from these things. It describes him as Lord. This is saying this deliverer isn't just a victorious soldier. He is the one who is the ruler, who is the sovereign of all things. In fact, earlier in Hebrew and uh, Philippians, rather, it says that, that he is the one, if you look at, at Philippians 2, if you have a Bible open, that one day every knee is going to bow to. Even Caesar is going to bow to Jesus. He is the ultimate sovereign. He is the Lord. Um, and it tells us he is Christ. That means he's the anointed one. Anointing is what was done to Old Testament prophets and priests and especially kings. It's an acknowledgement of the kingship of Jesus over all things. And finally, you see that he is named Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh saves. It's invoking the name of, of God in the Old Testament as the one who saves. Uh, why, why was he named that? We're told by an angel in Matthew that uh, he's speaking to Joseph and he says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now, let me just acknowledge, again, if you're here investigating the Christian faith, um, you probably had to come over the idea of sin. You know, the church talks about sin all the time. The church talks about being saved it probably was a little bit of a leap for you to get over some of that to even show up this morning, so I'm glad you've done that. But let me, let me reinterpret maybe a little bit what the Bible talks about sin. It's pretty simple, actually. It means that I care more about myself than I care about you, that I am always going to look out for me, and that is always going to cause problems horizontally with other people. But even more than that, I am prone to just dismiss God and live like he doesn't exist. 
That's what Jesus described as the two great commandments, to love God and to love other people. And sin is just acting like those things aren't true. Now, the reality is, many of us, and this might be you if you're investigating the faith, turn to religion when we are seeking solace, perhaps confronted by something that seems overwhelming to us. You've got some unprecedented challenge in your life. Or it could be when you're confronted with your failures, things that you've done wrong. The reality is we come looking when we realize we need deliverance. And Jesus came to deliver. He, he knows that you are needy. He knows all of your failures, and he's inviting you to come. And as it says in, in verse, the very end of verse 21, the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself, uh, he is sovereign, everything is subjected to him, that means he can deliver you. He has the power to deliver you. Um, let, me, let me just ask two, um, to, to Christians in the room. Do you realize that you are still needy? How much you still need saving from yourself? Uh, the reality is all of us need a continual renewal. How do we stay there? A big piece of it is understanding who God is and being honest about who we are. Being honest about our failures, seeing his purity over against who, who we are in our failures. Uh, that's the only thing that's going to keep me humble before him. And at the same time, it is critical over all of this to see the love of God that Jesus would come that Jesus would go to the cross, that Jesus would take our sin on himself. How do we begin to understand grace in a way that is transformative? I want to challenge you that it means being honest with your failings. That's the only way that grace is transformative being honest with my failings, and embracing this, hear me, that who we are in our worst moments is who we really are. Because what is our propensity? Well, you know, if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done this. We make excuses. We defend what we do. The Bible is inviting you to, to look in the mirror, to see who we are in those moments, because that is what enables you to see your need. And at the same time as you see your need, you desperately need to see who Jesus is as the one who is the deliverer sufficient to save you from yourself. I'm going to skip this James passage. I would commend that to you for later if you have a pencil. Write down James 4, 6 to 10. Um, it's significant for addressing these themes that I'm talking about, the importance of needing him. Uh, but the reality is, if you, if you want to know true joy and peace, this is the path. One of the things that, that 
my wife and I are committed to is taking a day off during the week, that, which is our Sabbath. And so part of what we do on, on that day is participate in worship in, in some way, um, digitally. And so one of, the, one of the people that I listen to fairly often is Tim Keller. And I heard a sermon a couple weeks ago before he passed. And he was describing a season in his life where he just was confronted constantly with his failures. He was seeing it in his personal life. He was seeing it in his ministry in the church. He was messing up all over the place. And he says that was a point where grace went deeper than it had been before, where he realized, wow, you must really love me. You know, the thing that I keep preaching to everybody every week, you must really love me because I can't perform my way out of this. My failures are in front of me again and again and again. So we need a savior to deliver us. Now, this is important to realize before we get on to our next, our last point. Paul and the apostles believed that Jesus would return in their lifetime, and so should we. I realize that there have been unhelpful speculations in the past, people predicting it's going to happen here or there, but the main thing we need to get from these texts, what is clear is that he's coming back. Awaiting is getting at a the Greek is getting at a concentrated eagerness, a persistence of expectation. It has in view an eye that is focused on one thing, detached from everything else. We don't have a date. He wants us to live daily in that expectation and hope and delight. So what is this expectation that we are looking forward to? Uh, the passage talks about the resurrection power that is given and the transformation for us. Uh, so it says in, in verse 21 that he's going to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. What does this mean? Um, from lowly to glory. Let, let me say to start off that then when it talks about lowly, it doesn't mean that there's something fundamentally wrong with our bodies and physically who we are, like our, our body is, is sinful. Um, what it means is what all of us over 40 have already learned. These bodies are transient. They age and decay and start to break down. So when I eat a, a piece of berry pie last night, my wife says, is this going to be okay? Because now that I'm in my 50s, I got this little sphincter at the top of my stomach that isn't doing what it's supposed to do. And so I get acid reflux if I eat sweet stuff at night. And spicy food's a problem. All the things I love are now a problem. That's what it means when it says our bodies are lowly. It was never God's intent that this body would be eternal in this world. Because God's plan for this world was not that this world itself would be eternal, but that it would need a radical transformation. This is why if you look at Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, what, is it, what does the Lord say? Don't let them eat the tree of life and have them live forever, because it's not here that that's going to happen. But if you fast forward to the end of the story, Revelation 22, that city has come down from heaven. What is flowing from the throne of God through this city? The water of the river of life. What is on every side of this river? 
the tree of life, bearing fruit month after month, where the saints are invited, come and eat, feast, and live forever. So, so our bodies are lowly. They're going to be transformed to be like Jesus' glorious body. So what does this mean? First of all, there is continuity and discontinuity. And, and we get a picture of that. What do, what, how do we understand the glorious body? I, I want us to think just for a moment here about Jesus' resurrection body that we see. And so um, one aspect is that he was physical. He could be touched. You've all seen, I'm sure, this famous painting um, of, of doubting Thomas put his hand, putting his hand in his side. Jesus could be touched. He breaks bread in Emmaus. He cooks fish on a beach in John. But at the same time, he could disappear and reappear miles away. He could walk through doors. He could enter into a closed room. And, and one of the ways that I think we've struggled with this is we've seen that as kind of a ghost. Uh, I like how C.S. Lewis describes this. He says, it's not that Jesus was ghostly. He was actually, uh, he doesn't use this, I'll use this word, ultra-physical. What does that mean? Jesus could pass through those doors like I can walk through water. He was more solid. So just like we pass through water, he could pass through doors because the molecules would jump out of the way for him to come through. He was more physical, not less physical. Um, so there's continuity and, and discontinuity because he has been transformed by the resurrection. And we see some amazing pictures of this as we look at the, the, the gospel narratives. But let me, let me jump ahead here to 1 Corinthians 15 um, because this gives us, this is the most um, expressive part, this is the most detailed account of what resurrection means in the New Testament from 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, and here's just a short section of it. It says that what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body... There is also a spiritual body. So let me, let me tease out a little bit of this imagery here. First of all, it gives in, it's giving a picture of, of a seed that is sown versus what actually grows. So it's saying that the body that you have now, the lowly body, is kind of like this acorn. And there is continuity between an acorn and, and a fully grown oak tree. So this, this is project in Schenectady, New York, or uh, in New York State, and this was uh, Schenectady Central uh, Park, where they're looking for the largest oak trees in New York State. This oak tree has a 15-foot diameter, and it is over 80 feet high. Remember the picture of the acorns, right? That's where this came from. It's saying... That's your lowly body, the acorn. This is where you're headed because you are going to be transformed to have a glorious body like his. 
The other thing that, that uh, you see in 1 Corinthians 15 is it describes a natural body and a spiritual body. And, and we need to do a little bit of work here because the idea of natural, um, that's coming from the Greek word sukikos. That's what we get like psychology from. Uh, it's basically getting at the idea of a human soul. That, that word suke is often rendered soul. And it's referring to something of the natural world. Over against that, it's saying spiritual and that, that Greek word pneumatikos, I, I would actually argue that should be a capital S because it's talking about the way the Holy Spirit empowers and enlivens us. What Paul is getting at is not one is physical and can be touched and the other one's kind of ephemeral and floating around. What Paul is getting at is what these bodies run on. So what came to mind was a, contra uh, a little contrast here. This is a Model T. It was all the rage in the beginning of the 20th century. It was 20 horsepower, and it could do zero to 60. In, no, actually, it couldn't do zero to 60 because its top speed was 45 miles an hour. This is your lowly body. I acknowledge it's a weak illustration, but it's really hard to capture these things. This is where you're headed. This is a Tesla Roadster. It has 1,000 horsepower. It's 0 to 60 in 1.9 seconds. It costs more than some of your houses. Its top speed is over 250 miles per hour. What our passage is saying is that you feel like a Model T right now. I get that. But you are a Tesla because the spirit is at work in you. Are they the same? Well, you know, they're both cars. But everything has been radically changed and transformed, including the power source that runs this. Uh, what does all this mean? The Bible gives us some incredible pictures Psalm 16, do you know that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore? Do you know Psalm 36? He invites us, drink from my river of delights, feast on the abundance of my house. We serve a God who created this world beautiful, who created pleasure, who wants us to enjoy these things as he designed. And he's saying, the eternity in store for you, you need this to be able to drive on those roads. You couldn't handle it right now with the body you have. This is the work that I want to do in you, um, that I will do, that is promised to you. Finally, it says, all things are subjected to Jesus. Uh, what does that mean? You can have utter confidence in the end of the story. If you are in Christ, if you are resting in him, your fate is guaranteed. And the end of the story should impact how we are today. If we're honest, often it doesn't. Right? We need to cry out to him for grace that this resurrection hope would awaken us and animate us, that we would be living today where you are in Phoenixville or wherever he's placed you 
as a citizen of heaven in that place, awaiting this deliverer who is going to transform us and this world by his mighty power. He's inviting you now to have take part in it. Um, I love that this church celebrates the Lord's Supper every week because we really need to be strengthened for this work. So we're going to come to the table for a moment, in a moment, and, and partake and be strengthened for what lies ahead. Uh, and know that he meets you in it to empower you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that our future is guaranteed. And would you now, as we come to this table, would you remind us the truth of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, what he's accomplished on our behalf? And would we have a glimpse, a foretaste at this meal of an appetizer that's coming? Because you tell us that, that the new heavens and new earth begins with a banquet, with a wedding feast to Jesus, where we are his bride. Would you give us hearts longing for that day? In his name we pray. Amen.